Revelation 13, 5 through 10. As we come back to our study of Revelation this week, as last week we were in the book of Isaiah, I do hope that that passage was a blessing to you, an encouragement to you. Obviously, I want this passage to be an encouragement and blessing to you as well. But as we begin, again, our study in the book of Revelation, I want to go over a, a few things that I think will be helpful for us as we study this book. Because I believe that there are ways to study this book and understand this book that aren't as helpful for us. Many study the book of Revelation like a display of diamond rings in a jewelry store. They bow down and they look at each ring and they admire its cut, its clarity, color, and carrots. They study it, admire it. Then they move on to the next ring and do the same thing. Even so, many open to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. They see the reference to the beast from the sea, and they say, well, what's that? And all their study is fixated on the identity of that beast. But this beastly character is given to us in a storyline of the book of Revelation. That is to say... We're not going to understand the story of Revelation if we look only at its fascinating features, like one looks at rings at the jewelry store. By comparison, imagine the story of Jack and the beanstalk. Imagine telling that story to one of your wee children. And as you try to tell the story, they begin to question you at length. Tell me about the bean. What color was it? What size was it? What shape was it? What type was it? And then they go on the same kind of line of questioning when it comes to the stock. How big was it? Where was it planted? How tall was it? What shade of green was it? And you get to thinking, you know what? This story is more than about the bean and the bean stock. You might understand all the details of the bean and the beanstalk, but completely missed the story of Jack and the beanstalk. I believe the same is true when it comes to the book of Revelation. This book is teaching us that Jesus Christ is going to accomplish the Father's will by bringing heaven's kingdom to earth. Christ will reclaim the earth as his rightful possession. In the beginning of the book, Christ is the first figure we meet. He's the one that John sees. He is the one walking amongst the seven lampstands, the seven churches. And in so doing, he is directing and guiding his people, chapters 2 and 3. As we moved on in the book, we saw that he takes the scroll from the Father's hand. He opens the seals of that scroll, and he executes the judgment of God. And one day, he will return to reclaim the earth. And chapter 13 fits into that overarching storyline by revealing the opposition that Christ is going to face in the final days before his return. So, as we're going to go through this text, let's consider it in the context of all that Jesus Christ is doing. In this passage, we'll see the reach of Satan's champion. Let's consider it, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word, we ask that it would inform us correctly And indeed it does inform us, but we pray that we would understand it as it is actually written. 
and not be fascinated with this or that character or this or that doctrine or theological system, but instead we would we'd read the text and understand what it says, given what we've already read and what we will read in this book. Father, help us to that end. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We can all appreciate the dinnertime drama at the table, many times with little kids, of when a cup sits nicely on the table and all of a sudden it's spilled. And when that happens, there's quite a scene. An adult dashes to get a a dishcloth, and then all the people of the table start trying to maneuver to channel the direction of the water so that it doesn't fall on them. And it's, it's really quite a scene. And then finally, mom or dad has the towel and everything is, is solved. But just for a moment, a few ounces of water wreaks havoc on the dinner table. Now, I want you to compare that to what we read in the book of Job. In the book of Job, we learn about the great God who made heaven and earth. And God said to the waters, Thus far you shall come, and no further. And here shall you proud waves be stayed. Those masses of water, not little ounces, cups of water, but the waters of the globe, he has established how far they go. He's established the shoreline. And that is something altogether different than us feebly trying to stop water from getting everywhere on the dinner table. You see, God has the kind of authority, the kind of power to stop the powerful seas of the earth. One of the most powerful and destructive elements in the earth. But reflect with me for a moment as we think about the sea. From the sea, we also find floods, tsunamis. Hurricanes cause the seas to go beyond their regular boundaries. Those things are frightful for us. I'm guessing you've probably had the same dream that I have of the big wave. Maybe you've had that dream of the big wave that you couldn't get away from. We get afraid. We don't like when boundaries are crossed. But the point is, God is still in control of even the seas. And even during catastrophes, when the seas go beyond their bounds, God does not allow them to go farther than he determined to allow them to go. The prophet Amos said this, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The answer, of course, is no. God allows disaster. He's the one ultimately responsible. He is the one who is in control. And as we turn to Revelation 13 we will see that one day God will allow an individual to devastate the earth. Revelation 13, 1 through 4, we see first that Christ described the rise of Antichrist. And even before that happens, Christ knows and reveals the rise of Satan's champion. He says that it's happening, but that shows us that he knows that it will happen. He reveals his identity in the first two verses and the fact that people are going to idolize him. They will worship him. And that will be because he was assassinated, it says slain to death, 
And then he would come to life, and that would amaze all the people. And in response, they're going to confess that the beast is incomparable and unstoppable. They say in verse 4, who is like the beast, and who can fight against him? Their thought is, there's no one like the beast. And that's the concept of holiness. There's no one like our God, holy, unlike any other one. And they will say of the beast, he is incomparable. Let's say he's unstoppable. And their perception is that no one can conquer this beast. And the overarching picture of Revelation is this is an epic story that is being set up for us. But it is an epic that is true, but that has not yet taken place. And that is to show us the fact that God can reveal this beforehand shows us that he is in complete control of this one who will rise to power in the end. And that's supposed to encourage us that everything that's going to happen is under God's control. Now, we know this in part is the case because of the original audience of this book. I want you to think just for a moment back through what we've already studied in the book of Revelation. Have there been times that Christ revealed something that would happen in the future to the people of God. Of course, in chapter 12, we saw that the dragon was going to pursue the woman and pursue the woman's offspring. We believe that that is going to be future. That's going to happen. We know from chapter 11 that one day there will be two witnesses who prophesy for three and a half years, and one day they will be slain. But can you remember back to even chapters 2 and 3? where Christ foretells something that will happen specifically to a church. And hopefully you can think back to the church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna in chapter 2, where Jesus said to that church, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, can we just take a moment and imagine what it would be like to have gone to the church service in Smyrna on that Sunday and heard that passage read? You can perhaps imagine that some of the people there would have been tempted to change churches because they didn't like that message. But of all the true believers... Imagine them hearing that Christ had said that's what was before them. Consider what they would face, how long it would take for it to happen. Ten days, and that's it. And then hear what Christ promised. I will give you the crown of life. You see, like a doctor assures a patient who's going into a surgery, it's going to be okay, you'll come out. So Christ assures his faithful witnesses that he will give them the crown of life when they close their eyes in death. He comforts them. He tells them what is going to come. Even so, Christ describes the rise of Antichrist. He can do so because he's all about it, and he is in absolute control of it. And that needs to console us. Now, as we go on today, verses 5 through 8 of chapter 13, we are going to see, secondly, that Christ determines the reach of Antichrist. Christ determines the reach of Antichrist, 5 through 8. And then in the last two verses, 9 and 10, that's the first section, 1 through 10, 
In those last verses, we'll see that Christ directs the reaction to Antichrist. So three points, divided into two sermons. But Christ describes the rise of Antichrist. Christ determines the reach of Antichrist. And Christ directs the reaction to Antichrist. So let's consider points two and three today. Verses five through eight, Christ determines the reach of Antichrist. As we read through verses 5 through 8, you'll find something that is repeated again and again. You'll see the phrase, it is allowed, or it was allowed, or it was given. And ten times in this chapter, the word forgiving occurs. And most of the times it occurs, it is what we call a divine passive. We're not told who gives But in most of the cases, it is God who is the one who is giving certain powers that are to be used and who is giving and allowing certain events to take place. And what makes chapter 13 difficult for us, why it's hard to understand, is why is God giving things to people who are then in turn using those things against God? We wonder, well, why would God do such a thing? Well, brothers and sisters in the Lord, it's not hard to imagine because every day most people use their God-given abilities to sin. That's happening all the time. We even have used our time and talents to instead of serve the Lord, we sin with them. So there really is no surprise to read that God gives people things and they use those things against Him. But that should teach us some things about God. Number one, God passes over sin. Number two, that God is greater than our sin. He is a patient God. He calls himself long-suffering. And he is a God who has a plan that is in no danger of being thwarted. It doesn't matter how greatly evil rises up. His plan will never be moved. Just think back to Christ crucified. We read that the Son of Man was delivered over into the hands of wicked men to be crucified, but that was done in accordance with the redemptive plan of God. When it would seem that evil was winning, when the Messiah was slain, God was executing His plan. So there's no reason for us to worry as if something is out of control. So as we read that one day the powers of evil are going to be given a lot of leash, We shouldn't be afraid. So let's consider, verses 5 through 8, the opposition that Christ is going to allow the person of the Antichrist. Verses 5 and 6, Christ is going to authorize the Antichrist's blasphemous words. It says, The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Verse 6, It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So one day, the beast, the Antichrist, is going to blaspheme God and His people. It's one of His chief characteristics will be His speech. And Daniel, the prophet, foretold about this one who was to come. It says that he would speak great things and that he would speak against the Most High, Daniel chapter 7, verses 8, 20, and 25. He will be distinguished by what he says. And we read that back in chapter 13, verse 1, where it says that he had blasphemous names on his head. 
God is going to allow the Antichrist to slander him and his people. And again, we ask the question, why would God allow that to happen? But again, reflect on it. How strong is the person who, when he is criticized, he lashes out in anger? That person's not very strong. But how much stronger is the person who, no matter how much people lash out, he's unmoved because it's all beneath him. It's all lesser than him. It really affects him in no way. You see, God is willing to be slandered. He's willing for a time, as we read in chapter 12, for Satan to accuse the brothers. He allows that because it really doesn't affect him in that it changes his plan. It really is a worthwhile attack that accomplishes something. It doesn't. He's greater than all those things. So he is going to authorize blasphemous words against him and allow them because they won't do anything. And Christ is going to authorize a very short term for this beast. Look at the end of verse 5. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Young people, how many years is that? He is going to be given a period that has been defined in this book as the final period before Christ comes to fulfill all of his promises. This is a period of time that is less than a single term for a U.S. president. And I hope that sets it in perspective. He's not even going to get as much time as a U.S. president. And I haven't lived very long, but I have voted for several presidents, and they do come and go. And so it is that the Antichrist will come and he will go. Because in contrast to his reign, as we saw in chapter 11, heaven saying that Christ will come and rule and reign forever. So this is only a temporary thing. It's nothing to worry about. So Christ authorizes his blasphemous words. He authorizes his short term. Thirdly, Christ authorizes his destructive works. Look at verse 7. Also, it was allowed... The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. You know, years ago, Fox's Book of Martyrs began to be written, and it is a huge, huge set of volumes that traces and records stories of people who gave their life for their faith in Jesus Christ. And what we find here is that there will be a lot of new entries for that book because the Antichrist is going to be very successful in murdering God's people. And, of course, that's what we read in the book of Daniel and how it was said that the horn made war on the saints and prevailed over them. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High God, Daniel seven twenty one and 25. Those are chilling words. But Jesus says that this authority that the beast is going to wield is really nothing like the authority that he has. Jesus said in the Gospels, we're not supposed to fear the one who can destroy the body alone. We're supposed to fear him who's able to destroy body and soul in hell. So this Antichrist is going to have vast authority, but it's only over the physical realm. And brothers and sisters in the Lord... All that Satan could do, all that the Antichrist will do one day to the saints is bring about their death. But that is simply a doorway to the eternal life that God has promised them. 
So his power is not as great as we might think initially. Fourthly, this morning, look at verses 7 and 8, where we see Christ authorizes his worldwide worship. Authority was given the beast over it, over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. The beast is going to be worshipped by the whole world. He will have total control over the nations with one exception. Look at the end of verse 8. Everyone's going to worship the beast, each one whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That is to say, there are names that have been written before the world was created. You remember that Isaiah the prophet in the 800s, he named the king who would come release God's people from captivity. He named Cyrus 150 years before he came onto the scene. And so it is that God is able to write your name, my name, in his book of life before mankind was created. That is easy for him. But what this shows us is that some names are written, Some aren't. And those who aren't written, they will worship the beast. I want you to see two points from this. Number one, one day there will not be three or more options for mankind to choose. You will either worship the beast or you will worship the lamb. You will be true to the beast. You will be true to the lamb. That's it. No alternative option. The second thing I want us to consider is that name. Is your name in that book? Because that is what truly matters. And you can know if your name is in that book by where your allegiance is today. If your allegiance is with the Lord Jesus Christ, then your name is there. And you can have great confidence. You can have great confidence that you will remain faithful to God. Why? Because He chose you long ago, before mankind was even made. But those who aren't written there, they will worship the beast, and God is going to allow that to happen. We've seen this morning so far that Christ describes the rise of the Antichrist, and he determines the reach of Antichrist. As we move to the final verses of this section, verses 9 and 10, we see that Christ directs the reaction to Antichrist. How should God's people respond? Well, God's people should receive what Christ has revealed about what is to come. Look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, I see a whole lot of ears today, but I think that the point is not simply do you physically have ears, but are you willing to listen to what God is saying and believe it? That's the point. And you remember, this is exactly what was written to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. At the end of each one of those letters, it says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is nothing new. This actually jogs our memories. And perhaps this is a shortened version in chapter 13, verse 9, some kind of veiled reference to the fact that the church has already been raptured at this point. But for certain, 
what is being said here matters to the churches of Asia Minor. The content, the prophecy, what will happen in the future matters to the church of Asia Minor. They have to believe it. They have to receive it as the truth. And I'd say that's really, really important as we consider, again, the church of Smyrna. Remember, the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2 was the one that faced imminent danger. They needed to perk up their ears. And by extension, we have to perk up our ears because we likewise are a church of Jesus Christ. You know, there are times that people falter. Parents, we know that there are times that our children falter and fail because they don't listen to us. And likewise, when the church of Jesus Christ does not listen, they falter and fail. So here is a call to God's church to listen and to receive what God has said. And he goes on to say that God's people must persevere in verse 10. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Here's the call. You say, what's the call? Well, I'm going to read that in a moment. It's the beginning of verse 10. But the reason that I read the end of verse 10 is it tells us how to understand the first part. God requires two responses. He requires endurance and faithfulness. And they're essential given what God is going to allow in the lives of believers. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. You see, God's people must endure the difficulties that he allows. Let that settle in for a moment. God's people must endure what God allows to happen to them. You know, it might be tempting us to think that we will be some kind of tribulation force against evil, and our responsibility then is to rid the world of evil. But we read this text and realize one day God will allow evil to have its day and there will be nothing that we will be able to do to stop it. There will be no political push or social media post that we can do that will hold back what God is going to allow So instead of calling for revolution, instead of calling for us to take up arms, God calls his saints to endure hardship for him. When it comes to our Christian faith, we're not supposed to raise our fists and fight back. Instead, we're supposed to hold forth the gospel. Remember what the Apostle Peter said. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have the prospect of facing more opposition to Christianity in America than we have previously, perhaps. Given that point, we need to have the right mindset about how we face those who oppose us. Not just oppose us, but us as Christians, as followers of Christ. Are we going to have the mindset that we truly believe in our hearts that God is the one who guides us through the valley of the shadow of death, that it is God who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies? 
The point is, don't fight the circumstances that God has decided for you today. He might decide, and he one day will decide, incredibly evil circumstances. But what we must do is endure for Christ's sake and for Christ's glory. That's what we're called to, is to endure it. And to do so in such a way that we are joyous to be able to suffer as Christ suffered. God's people must persevere and God's people must remain true to Christ. The faith that he requires is faithfulness to him. The faith he requires is to the end. Whether that end that God determines is something natural or something tragic or something that is devilish that we read about in the passage before us. The point is God decides what happens all the way through the life of his people to the very end. And those whom he has written in his book of life, they're going to endure by his grace. So trust him. Trust him. In the book of Job, we read that the sea is given a boundary. The waves can rise against the shoreline, but only so far. They can wash up, but they must stop. That's it. No further. One day, Satan and his champion, the Antichrist, are going to likewise be given a bit more leash, but they will still have boundaries. Even in the time that we think all the boundaries are gone. Even in the time when all will worship the beast. God will make it so that those written in the book won't. God is going to cause that to happen. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're not called to stem the tide. We're not called to manipulate the circumstances. We like the times that we sit at the dinner table and we try to control the spill from going everywhere and it looks like quite a scene. We're really feeble at all that. How much more feeble would we be against the rise and the reach of Antichrist? We can't overcome him, but that's not our responsibility. It's not our task. Our task is very plain and simple. Persevere. Be faithful. Father, we ask that you will help us. Keep us in our lane because we often want to dictate what happens in our lives. Instead of being a sheep with a shepherd, trusting that you will provide each thing that we need, trusting that even what you allow into our life that's contrary to you and to us, you mean it for our good and your glory, that you are using each circumstance to draw us closer to you fulfilling all promises to us, that we will one day be with you in glory and all of sin will be gone. Father, we pray for that day. We pray today, as the churches of Asia Minor must have prayed, that they would be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work, no matter what evil rises up. We pray that you'll help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.